Well, as you know, today marks the beginning of a new season. This is a season of ordinary time and therefore the beginning of a new sermon series as well, which is on the book of Esther. And as usual, and kind of by design, if you know me by now, the two are perfect for each other. So Esther is perfect for ordinary time because ordinary time is about how God is just as present and just as active in the ordinary as he is in the extraordinary. So the same God who works such extraordinary miracles way back in the Bible, uh, he's still working today, but just through more ordinary events. And just because it's ordinary doesn't mean it's less significant. And that's why, friends, it's amazing that Esther is in the Bible. Because the story of Esther is so ordinary. It's interesting, not even all of the Bible is extraordinary. Esther shows us the hidden hand of God is at work, even in the ordinary. One commentator sums it up like this. The Esther story is an example of how at one crucial moment in history, the covenant promises God had made were fulfilled, not by his miraculous intervention, but through completely ordinary events. How ordinary are we talking, friends? Really ordinary. Famously, the name of God is never mentioned throughout this entire book, which is actually the book's literary genius. Through that, they're saying even when God seems most absent, he's not. He's present. He's working. So there's no mention of God, friends. There's no mention of Jerusalem or the temple. No one worships or prays in Esther. There is apparently no concern for keeping the law. The heroes of the book, you're going to see Esther and Mordecai, are are morally ambiguous at best. Okay? There are no prophetic visions. There's not even one tiny miracle in the book of Esther. The people of God are in a foreign land under a foreign king, and they seem to have completely lost their way of life, completely assimilated into the broader secular culture. They have no temple, no priests, no sacrifices, no prophets, no word from God, no king, and no power. And yet, even in the most pagan corner of the world, the hidden hand of God is working. He's ruling all things for the glory of his name and for the good of his people. I don't know about you, I need Esther. I don't know if you do. I think Esther is in the Bible because we need Esther. Because lots of times in our life with God, he feels absent, right? Or he feels silent. Like he's not speaking to us. We have to make decisions that are full of significance, like we, but we don't know, we have no word from God, uh, as they say. When we follow God, though, we see no miracles in our life because we have no earthly king, no earthly kingdom, because we live in a foreign land, a secular land that is more or less hostile to our most fundamental beliefs as Christians. Because we, too, feel like the people of God are compromised, that we've lost our way, we've assimilated either to the right or to the left of the political spectrum. And the question is, is God still with us? Is he in control? Is he working his purposes out? And are those purposes for our good? Are we still the people of God? And is he still the covenant-keeping God of the Bible? See, that's why we need Esther. We need to learn to see the hidden hand of God working in unlikely places, through unlikely people, through seemingly insignificant events. 
So let's dive in. Let's begin. Esther 1 in what I am calling the hidden hand of God and the hearts of kings. Because interestingly, the story of Esther does not begin with Esther or with Mordecai or any Jewish character, but with a Persian king who seems to have all the power. But you're going to ask, you're going to see, does he really? Who's really in charge in the book of Esther? Friends, would you stand for the reading of God's word? This is Esther chapter 1, the entire, the entire chapter, verses 1 through 22. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when a king Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to the king Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of, of king Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs, and at this the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. The men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marsana, and Memukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. The Memukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be, will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials. (laughs) There will be contempt and wrath and plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. 
and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the, and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together for the preaching of God's word. Father, I, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for your spirit, which helps us now to understand your word. And I ask for your help, Lord, that my speech and my message would not be implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that our faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Would you be seated, please? Do you remember who your elementary school bully was? I do. Well, assuming it wasn't you, by the way. <laughs> if it wasn't you, do you remember who it was? We had several bullies at Delmay Elementary School in Florence, South Carolina, where I was raised. And I managed uh, mostly, I was not the bully, by the way, but I managed mostly to stay out of their way and, you know, avoid any trouble with the bullies. Until one time in about fourth or fifth grade, I can't remember when exactly, and I can't remember what I did, but I did something that caused one of these bullies to set his crosshairs on me. And for a while, he threatened every day to beat me up at, at recess. And this terrified me, even though I loved recess. It was, my, it was my favorite subject, after all. But because I was so terrified, I even found a way to not go to recess. And so I, I intentionally got in trouble, so I lost my recess. I volunteered to do chores during recess, which I didn't want to do. And sometimes I just stayed inside on my own and ate my lunch by myself. Isn't that so sad? This is how terrified I was of the bully. And eventually, nothing came of it. I think he forgot that he hated me, and life moved on without altercation. But a couple of months ago, I just I got curious. And I decided to see if I could look him up on Facebook uh, and see what he's up to today. And I found him. And guess what? He's kind of scrawny. <laughs> he's not very tall. He's not very strong. Kind of lives still close to our hometown and all his photos, which are public, were just him by himself. He, he seemed lonely and sad, actually. And I thought I could totally beat him up today. <laughs> I'm kidding. I mean, I had that thought and then I repented. No, but I, I did think this, this is the guy I was so afraid of. All it took was like seeing him in a different light, right? Seeing him in a different perspective to see what he really was which is probably just a scared kid back then, right? dealing with something difficult and taking it out on other kids. But in the end, you know, 30 years later or whatever, he's not so scary after all. Friends, I tell you this because this is exactly what you're supposed to do with the Persian king in our text today. The story of Esther begins with this grandiose description of Ahasuerus who is better known in history by the name of Xerxes I, 
which, by the way, that's what I'm going to call him because it's a lot easier to say than Ahasuerus, which is the correct pronunciation. I looked it up this week. Because the author paints a portrait of a vast kingdom and a glorious king sitting on top of it who puts on a lavish display of his wealth and his power. Xerxes is the schoolyard bully with near absolute power and control. But the whole thing, all of chapter 1, is written with this ironic wink and a nod to the readers. These little comedic clues where the author is saying to the reader, not everything is as it appears to be. The reader is invited to see King Xerxes for what he really is. He's a pawn in the hands of his advisors who easily manipulate him. But more importantly, friends, he's a pawn in the hands of God, the true king. The reader is invited to compare and contrast the very visible display of Xerxes' power and wealth and glory with the very hidden ways of God, who has true power and wealth and glory. See, one is a, is a visible illusion, the other is an invisible actuality. See, right out of the gate, the author of Esther is teaching us how to see the rulers of the earth for what they actually are. Which, I don't know, seems pretty relevant to us in these times today. With all of our talk of of politics and presidents and what kind of leaders we need if the kingdom of God is going to advance on this earth. But as Karen Jobes says in her commentary... The great lesson of Esther is that it is the story of God's keeping promises in spite of the political configuration of the world. We'll say that again. It's the story of God's keeping promises in spite of the political configuration of the world. Why? Because of Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. See, friends, the hidden hand of God even holds the hearts of kings, even even pagan kings, and he turns it wherever he wills for his purposes. And King Xerxes is exhibit A in the book of Esther. Notice in the opening verses, we meet him by the Hebrew form of his name, Ahasuerus, a word that actually has no meaning, but when pronounced out loud, sounds something like King Headache in English. See, the author is already poking fun at the king, perhaps because he drinks so much and he has a hangover, therefore, king headache. Next, we are told of the vastness of his empire. He rules over the Persian Empire, which spread from modern-day Ethiopia to modern-day Pakistan, which included, the author says, over 127 provinces. This is impressive. It's incredibly impressive. Some called Xerxes the king of kings because of the immensity of his empire. King Xerxes rules from his throne in the city of Susa, the citadel which is in the modern-day Iran. Susa was the summer home of the king. So while summering in Susa, the king decides to throw a party. And if you notice, not just any party, a party that lasts for six months. That's a party. He invites all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media, and the nobles and the governors from all the provinces. And what is the purpose of said party? Well, verse 4 tells us directly. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and the pomp of his greatness. (laughs) 
that's quite um, forward when you say. What if we were as honest about the parties we throw, right? I'm, I'm inviting you over so you can see how rich and awesome I am. So please come, right? But friends, historians believe that this lavish party actually had a different purpose. It was actually a war council. Because Xerxes was seeking support for a, for a future military campaign against the Greeks. He wanted to expand his empire. And therefore, this display of his wealth and power was an implicit promise, right? If you align yourself with me, this is a vision of what your life could be like. This is proof that I make good on my promises. So a six-month party apparently was not enough because after that he throws a week-long party for all the citizens of the people of Susa, from the least to the greatest, many of whom, by the way, were probably been entertaining his royal guests for the last six months. So perhaps this was like a thank you for entertaining all the, the fancy people. But he invites even the commoners into his palace. And look at the description in verse 6. This is over the top. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver. Yes, couches of gold and silver. That can't be comfortable, but it is made of gold. (laughs) You know, like I would have a couch of gold. Why not? Verse 7, drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. Again, friends, you got to see it. There's a political angle. He's saying to the citizens of his own city, if you stay loyal to me, I will take care of you out of the abundance of my own riches. And then, as a display of his power, King Xerxes issues an edict to say how the party attenders should party. Do you notice that? Verse 8, there is no compulsion. Because who issues edicts legislating how people should eat and drink at a party? Well, King Xerxes does, because he has absolute power. He says, you eat and drink how I say you eat and drink. Friends, what happens next is the crux of the drama in chapter 1. It's amazing. On the last day of the feast, when the king is very drunk, he thinks of yet another way to display his power. And he issues another edict, if you will. He summons his wife, Queen Vashti, who is throwing a party for the women of Susa, and he demands that she come over and appear before him and all his guests with her royal crown so that everyone can see her beauty. Some commentators think that the king was demanding that she appear only with her royal crown. But either way, the wording is telling you this is a situation where she is going to be sexually exploited. She's going to be objectified. She's going to be humiliated for the entertainment of the king's guests. See, Vashti is not a wife. She's a trophy. She's the king's property of whom he can do whatever he wants. Even the queen is not safe from this king's powerful whims. But notice what happens. To our shock and our surprise, Queen Vashti says, no. (laughs) She refuses. And guys, this is where the audience would erupt with laughter. Because think about it. The king controls a vast empire. He controls powerful armies. He controls how his subjects eat and drink in his home, but he cannot control his own wife. And therefore, Xerxes is furious. 
He's burning with anger because Vashti has embarrassed him in front of everyone. A party designed to show off his vast power. And with one word, no, Vashti demonstrates his impotence. That his power can be refused. She pops the bubble. Now, friends, what happens next is even funnier. Because Xerxes assembles this crack squad of advisors to decide what must be done to Vashti for refusing the king. And these wise men are very concerned that what the queen has done will become known to all the women in the kingdom, causing them to disobey their husbands too. So what do they decide to do? They send a royal order to every province in the empire, in every language of the empire, telling everyone what Vashti did. I don't know, if you're worried about all the women finding out, maybe don't tell them yourself, right? But they also tell what the repercussions are for Vashti. She is stripped of her royal crown. She is sent into exile and shame. The position of queen will be given to someone who is better than she. Furthermore, it is inscribed into law and shall not be repealed that every man is master of his own household and shall be honored by their wives, or else the fate of Vashti will befall you too. Like what a display of power again by King Xerxes. Except, as I stated in the beginning, the reader is enabled to see, King, King, is enabled to see Xerxes in a different light. To see him for who he really is. Right underneath all this pomp and glory and decadence and the decrees of a man at the height of his glory, he's powerless. He can't even control his own wife. He is a pawn that is easily controlled by his advisors. They say, let's make a, make a law that all wives must honor their husbands, and he complies without even thinking about the implications of that. But most importantly, friends, he is a pawn in the hands of the true king. The hidden God who is sovereign over every aspect of this chapter. Because when you take the whole story, what you're going to see is that he is in control of even a drunken decision by a power-hungry king. And a sober refusal by a dignity-preserving queen. Whom he sends into exile and opens the door for a new queen which God will sovereignly fill with Esther, the Hebrew, to put her in just the right place at just the right time to save her people from near annihilation. You see? God is in control. Underneath this grandiose display of Xerxes' power is the hidden hand of God, who actually holds all the power. And yet, brothers and sisters, he wields this power very differently. You see, the hidden king is a king like no other. No other. He's not like the Persian king. He's not like any of the kings of the earth. Because, brothers and sisters, he too has a vast empire. But it's not just a stretch of land in the Middle East. His dominion is from sea to sea. To the ends of the earth, which he rules by decrees. By the gospel, which is proclaimed throughout the world in every language. Friends, our king, too, has a throne, but it's not in the citadel of Susa, it's in the city of heaven. As Psalm 115 says, where is our king? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He, too, brothers and sisters, is throwing a lavish banquet for his people. 
Not just for six months, but for all eternity. The wedding supper of the Lamb. And friends, he invites everyone from the greatest to the least to his palace to feast with him to our heart's content. And brothers and sisters, at that feast, he too will display the beauty of his wife, the church. But not to exploit her, not to humiliate her, but to honor her as the bride of Christ, without spot or wrinkle, holy and without blemish. On that day, the church will be lovely to look at. Why? Because she's been made beautiful by the love of God displayed at the cross. Guys, you want to know the difference between King Xerxes and King Jesus? The greatest display of our king's power is in the weakness of the cross. It is there that he was publicly humiliated. He was exposed. He was crucified naked so that our shame could be covered. Our king is different. He died for his wife. He took her sins upon himself so that she could take his beauty upon herself. He who was rich was made poor so that we, through his poverty, might be made rich. And our king says, if you align yourself with me, I will provide for you out of the abundance of my own riches. In me, you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Brothers and sisters, underneath Esther 1, you see the true king, the world's true king, whose hidden hand is always working for his glory and for our good. So, from the secular city of Susa to the secular cities of today, everybody wants to know, how should we live as the faithful people of God in the in secular age? Some say we should dare to be a Daniel. Anybody remember that old hymn? Dare to be a Daniel. It's a terrible hymn. Some people say we should be Daniel, who defied the laws of men to obey the law of God at whatever cost to himself. Friends, most of us don't feel very courageous like Daniel, do we? I don't. Some say we should dare to be an Esther, whom God raised up for such a time as this to rescue her people from destruction. But, as you're going to see, maybe Esther isn't such the pure hero that we think she is. You know what I say? I say dare to be a Toto. (laughs) A Toto. Yeah, the little dog. In the Wizard of Oz who pulls back the curtain to show that the great and mighty Oz is just a frail old man pulling levers. So we too can pull back the curtain on the rulers of the earth to see them for what they really are. We look behind the curtain to see who's really in charge. We see the true king of kings and the lord of lords, who, by the way, has no problem working through even pagan kings to accomplish his purposes. He's been doing it forever, from Pharaoh to Cyrus to Darius to Xerxes to Herod to Pontius Pilate. So can we all take a deep breath and relax a little bit? Yes, be good citizens, you should vote, because virtuous leaders are really important. But let's not pretend that the kingdom of God is at stake. From that perspective, it doesn't really matter who's president or governor or mayor, because our king is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. His is the hidden hand that controls even the hearts of kings. Psalm 2 says, Why did the nations rage? 
And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. He who sits in the heavens laughs. What a gift in the secular age to exhale, to laugh. Because we're like Toto pulling back Oz's curtain. Like me and my schoolyard bully. Because our king is on his throne. And as we pray every week, his truly is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Let's ask God to help us. Our Father, like the book of Esther, we sometimes feel like you are absent. Like you are nowhere near us, like we are on our own. Lord, thank you that you've given us this book to show us that you are always present and you are always at work. Lord, I pray that would comfort us when we think about the rulers of the kings on earth. And I pray it would comfort us as we think about the details of our own life. Whatever we're going through right now, I pray that we would see your hidden hand. And even if we can't see it, we would know that you are there, that you are at work, even in ways we can't understand, for your glory and, yes, for our good, because you love us so much. We are your bride that you cannot wait to display You're the beauty of to your Father in heaven. Lord, continue to purify us and make us your beloved bride, even as we trust in you. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.